Hello and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All, where your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the often hidden and somewhat scandalous side of American history. Uh, we are very excited to be bringing you another episode in our Black History Month series. Uh, so I hope you're ready. I am Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together, and we're, <laughs> we're the, the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. <laughs> that wasn't as good. <laughs> we, we were not together, but we are still the Rebecca's. So I am really, really excited that we're, this is something we've talked about, talking about really from the time we started the podcast, and I'm really excited that we're digging into it now, which is talking about some of the first black individuals to serve in our Congress. This is huge. Uh, we're in such a historic period right now. We have the first woman of color serving as a vice president. We have been, you know, we have a cabinet that's the most diverse cabinet we've ever had in American history. And I think it's important to acknowledge that while we seem to talk about a lot of the progress being made in the last five or 10 years, which is all really important, that there were groundbreakers, you know, breaking new ground when it comes to representation in politics back in the 19th century and back earlier than I think a lot of people realize. Um, so I'm really, really excited for you to take us into this, Rebecca, because I'm amped to talk about it. I am amped to talk about this too. Giving tours around DC, you actually see pictures of both of the two gentlemen that we're going to talk about. They're on historic markers. Uh, we're going to talk about Hiram Rhodes Rebels and Blanche Kelso Bruce. And they were first and second, collectively, African-American senators in American history. And I got the idea to do this specifically a few weeks ago when I was on Twitter, because that's all we do anymore. And someone, and I lost the tweet and can't find it again, but someone tweeted about how when uh, Hiram Revels, the very first African-American senator, was um, appointed, because all senators in those days were not elected popularly, they were appointed, he takes his seat and there was a big controversy about whether he should be seated. And some segregationists in like Maryland, some senators literally turned their backs on him on the floor of the United States Senate. And so this kind of came into my Twitter feed and I thought, wow, this is a really interesting story. We should talk about that. And so here we are. <laughs> <laughs> So I think we'll go chronologically. We'll talk about Hiram first yes. and then into Blanche because there's a nice little sort of, I think, segue into yes. that. So they did not serve together. And what's interesting, Hiram Rhodes Revels is the first African-American senator. But as we're going to talk about, he does not serve a full term. Blanche Bruce does. So he's the second, but the first to serve a full term. It's kind of confusing. Hiram Rhodes Revels was born free. He was born to a free family uh, in North Carolina in 1827, so well into slavery times. He had free ancestors dating all the way back to before the American Revolution. So his family had a history of being free. He's educated. He becomes a barber, uh, which was a pretty good job for a black man in the slavery South back then. And I can only imagine how, like, it must... He's born in a city, so he's or what passes for a city in the 1820s, Fayetteville, North Carolina. So I can only imagine how difficult a life that must be in slavery time, walking around as a free person in a slave society. It must have been psychologically very strange. Like you can't stray too far because what if someone doesn't believe you that you were free? It must have been a really terrible way to grow up. Um, he becomes a preacher like his father and he's kind of going to be... Uh, sort of an itinerant preacher. He kind of moves around the Midwest and preaches in different places, which is not at all uncommon back then. He is even going to register to vote in Ohio, which is amazing. During the war, he serves as a chaplain. 
So he's already a preacher. And he serves as a, a, and helps recruit two regiments of black troops, one in Maryland and one in Missouri. He's going to be at the siege in Vicksburg, which is taking place in Missis- Vicksburg, Mississippi, at the same time as the Battle of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. So there are two events that are happening sort of on uh, opposite ends of the war at the same time. He stays there for the entire siege And after the war, he's going to join the uh, Methodist Episcopal Church. He's briefly assigned to a church in Kansas and then New Orleans. But not too long after the war, he is going to end up as a permanent pastor of a church in Natchez, Mississippi. At this time, he's going to get involved in local politics, becomes a local alderman, eventually is elected to represent his local county in the Mississippi State Senate. And it is worth pausing a moment to talk about the backdrop of the Mississippi State Senate and Mississippi State Legislature and Southern State Legislatures at this time generally, which is, (laughs) this is Reconstruction and they're under federal occupation. So Union troops are occupying all these Southern states and they are not allowed to popularly elect the people for the state legislature that's going to be controlled by the federal troops. So they're not electing the sort of good old boys that have been representing them before the war. The Union troops are going to promote sort of a much more reconstructions, endlessly complicated, you guys. There are like entire books written about this. And it's one of those eras in American history that is super understudied. But basically, this is sort of this brief moment of possibility for African-Americans in governance after the war. They are going to be appointed and elected and sort of included in civic life very much at the, I don't want to say request, but the Union troops are sort of helping to speed this along. And this is very much resented by the Southerners who want to just basically go back to the way things were before the war. This is the sort of central tension of uh, Reconstruction America. There's about, uh, I would I would say, you know, broadly, about a 15-year period right after we get the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments where there's a real concerted effort on the part of the United States federal government to actively engage with these amendments, to actively seek out opportunities to enfranchise African-Americans, to get them engaged in civics and local government and state government. So there really is this burgeoning of political engagement. There's also a burst of educational opportunities for uh, newly freed Black. So there's uh, schools that are cropping up. You have a lot of civic education. You have a lot of attempts to engage. Um, So there is a bit of a honeymoon period, for lack of a better term, after the war and after the passage of these three really key amendments that lasts for a little bit, but isn't going to last so long. And there are lots of political reasons and social reasons and cultural reasons. Why not? But as you said, you can maybe sort of imagine what it's like for white Southerners in these states who have lost the war, the indignity of of this loss, then they find themselves hamstrung by federal occupation, and they start seeing all these people that they don't view as equal or as rightfully embodied moving up in the world and moving up in political positions. And so there is going to be a big backlash that's coming. But Revels really is fortunate because he sort of comes in right at this moment where there's still that opportunity. Like you said, that kind of, you know, little hopeful ray of sunshine. Someone called it the springtime of race relations. And I feel Mm. like that's like a perfect term. And 
Well, and if you've listened to this podcast, you know it doesn't stay this way because we talk a lot about the 1880s and the 1890s and the early 1900s. So we're on an upswing that is very much going to work its way back. Yeah, there's a very huge, very swift, very total backlash. To torture the metaphor, spring comes early and then there's a very long frost after that which is a terrible metaphor. And I'm sorry, everyone. Uh, It wasn't great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Rebels is going to, as a pastor, he is going to get elected as state senator and he's going to deliver the opening prayer, the opening of the state legislature in 1870. And it's so very moving and lovely that he gets noticed. And the Mississippi at that time is just about to send its first senator's back to Washington since before the war. And so they need somebody to fill a seat. Uh, The seat had that last been filled in 1861 when Mississippi seceded to join the Confederacy. And in those days, like we mentioned, all senators, not just in Mississippi, not just in the South, all across the country, senators are not directly elected. We don't vote for them like we do today. Your state legislature appoints them. And so the state legislature says, hey, this guy's pretty cool. He's speaking important things. He's, you know, he's got a distinct point of view. Let's send him to Washington. And so that's exactly what happens. He is not appointed to a full term only for one year. And he's going to get sent up in February of 1870. And from the moment he steps onto the floor of the United States Senate, it is clear things are not going to go smoothly. Uh, There is all sorts of opposition to him taking his seat. Southern Democrats are going to offer challenges to whether or not he can be seated. There are also senators that will literally stand up and turn their backs to him, which is incredible to me that they disrespect him on the floor of the Senate in such a momentous way. On the floor of the world's greatest deliberative body. Right. (laughs) Mm. We have such ideas about the Senate being so civil and being so, so respectful and kind. And when you listen to the tone of conversation, there's, you know, uh, I defer to my friends from the great state of blank and all of that nonsense. But yet here comes a man who was dutifully appointed And on the floor of the Senate, people feel as though they have the right to stand up and turn their back on him. So it's it's shocking. And the opposition that has come, there's a couple of different, um, and this is led by one of the senators from Maryland, which Maryland is very much a border state, but also has some Southern Democrats as senators. They are going to lead the charge. The first type of opposition is that he has not, Revels has not been a citizen long enough since the 14th Amendment was ratified only two years prior. And the Dred Scott decision by the Supreme Court had invalidated all African-American citizenship before that. So basically they're saying that Dred Scott, which was a Supreme Court decision before the Civil War, invalidates all African-American citizenship. And so despite the fact that Revels was born a free man, that he had not been a citizen, starting when Dred Scott was decided in 1857, and his citizenship had not been restored until the 14th Amendment was passed in 1868. So he had not been a citizen long enough to qualify to be a senator. He's defended by other senators. The debate goes on for a while. Some people even argue the most blatant thing of all, which is that his skin color is a bar to him being a senator. These are not good people. A more substantial argument 
and this does seem to have a little bit of weight, is that Mississippi had not yet been formally readmitted to the Union. And so therefore, since they're not a state, they can't actually send senators. That kind of actually seems to hold some water. So they wait to seat him until Mississippi has been formally readmitted. And then they seat him. Uh, Charles Sumner and Henry Wilson, both senators from Massachusetts. Henry Wilson, by the way, is our old pal. You might remember him and his love letters. (laughs) Yes, Rose O'Neill Greenhow. Yeah, you all remember Henry Wilson. <laughs> and his that. Oh, yeah, and his death. Henry Wilson was the star of October. We have, we've talked about Henry Wilson a lot. Um, some are so not as much, although we should. We really should. They lead the charge for him, and Revels is voted in February 25th, 1870. The vote is 48 to 8, and the Senate is packed. Every senator is there, and the gallery is packed. There's lots of looky-loos packing in to see what's going on, and they want to see all this kind of happen. And we have this idea of the Senate, they're all there all the time senators are not really ever on the floor all at the same time so this is like a big deal he's going to give his maiden speech on march 16th about the reinstatement of black state legislatures in the south gets another packed gallery to hear him speak he proves to be pretty moderate and a tireless advocate for racial equality he is also very aware as you would expect that he is the first and spends a lot of his time reassuring his fellow senators that african americans are equally capable of leadership as whites are he even is going to argue for amnesty for confederates After his one-year term is over, he literally serves a year. He goes back to uh, Mississippi. He accepts the presidency of what is now Alcorn State University, a primarily black college. uh, And he remains a minister and teacher until his death in 1901. I find Revels really interesting because when he's done with this one year, there is a lot of interest because he is moderate, because he's very careful about what he says and how he presents himself. And he's so aware of the extra scrutiny that's on him. He makes a lot of friends and a lot of political allies, and he could have built a longer political career. He had offers for patronage jobs from President Ulysses S. Grant. He had offers for jobs helping to build African-American support in the party. Uh, And he sort of takes all of that and he goes, no, thank you. And he really turns his attention to education. And I find that really fascinating, but also I think really illustrative of the period, especially for African-Americans coming into this second generation or first really full generation after the end of the Civil War, knowing that ultimately education was going to be key. This was going to be what was important. And so he really puts all of what could have been political and financial gain, those patronage positions, people wanted them because it was a guaranteed income for as long as you held the position and usually a vast income or a sizable income. And uh, he he's not interested in that. He's not lured by money or more power or more fame, uh, he turns himself to education. And I find that really incredible. He's going to be replaced by a man named James Alcorn, who was a Confederate, but seems to be very moderate. We're also still under military occupation in Mississippi. Alcorn is going to start Alcorn State University, which... Hiram Rebels goes to teach at. Uh, So he was very much in favor of the 14th Amendment. He was in favor of black suffrage. And so he is going to be the senator uh, that replaces Hiram Rebels 
for six years. And then at some point in those six years, and we're going to talk about this a little more with Blanche Bruce, the Southerners reassert themselves. The military occupation in the South ends and uh, the white supremacists take back over. James Alcorn, when he's done, is going to be replaced by Lucius Lamar, who was a bad guy. He was really not in favor of decency or African-Americans having the vote. So you can see very quickly how there's this brief moment of moderation uh, and the temptation to have a more full participation with African-Americans in Southern society and how that's very quickly within the space of a decade going to be just completely wiped out. So as Rebecca was pointing out at the beginning, Revels does not serve a full term. So our first black congressman senator to serve a full term of office is going to be Blanche Kelso Bruce. He's going to have a story a little different from Revels' background. Blanche Bruce is born enslaved. He is born enslaved in Virginia. His mother is going to be impregnated by the man who enslaves her, which is not an uncommon story in this era. What this means for Blanche Bruce, though, is that he is of mixed birth. He is going to be given given opportunities that would probably not have been made available to him if not for the situation uh, regarding his who his father was. So he gets different jobs and pass. He's actually granted an apprenticeship and he's ultimately freed by his father, uh, which is unusual. This gives him a chance to go to college. This gives him a chance to learn skills and trade. And uh, again, because of his mixed birth, he often, when possible, passes. He passes for white when he can because it's easier and safer and smoother. So he does this for a while, but he will find himself ultimately in Mississippi. So he does end up in the same place that Revels does. Bruce, just like Revels, is going to serve locally and on the state level uh, before being appointed. He will be appointed, though, for a full six-year term. So he is going to actually have the full six years. He is going to be the only formerly enslaved person to serve in the Senate ever. We have not ever had anyone else and never will, hopefully, ideally. He also will become the first African-American to preside over the Senate. Often, I think if you tune in to watch Senate happenings, it's probably because something big is going on. So you usually have the majority leader presiding. But a lot of times, a lot of times, though, when there's business in the Senate, the people at the top, they don't want to be bothered with it. They're not there for, you know, housekeeping bills and they're not there for little things you do for parliamentary procedure. So sometimes they go pretty far down the list to get someone to preside, which is how you can be a freshman senator and find yourself presiding over the Senate. So that happens to Blanche Bruce, Senator Bruce. And so he has become the first African-American to preside. He is going to take, I think, a very different path than Revels Rebels when it comes to politics, though. When he becomes a U.S. senator, this puts him in the top tier elite in Washington, D.C. He's going to be connected to the black elite here in the city. He is going to see this six-year job as a jumping-off point for being involved in politics for the rest of his life. So he very much sees that he can make good happen by using politics to make the world a better place, make the country a better place for black citizens. So he's very engaged in Republican Party politics. He will actually be the very first African-American to receive votes for a national office. So he actually gets eight votes for the vice presidential position at the 1880 Republican National Convention. I like that because that's the convention that gives us James Garfield. And it would have been really cool if Garfield had had Blanche Bruce run as his vice president. Oh, wow. Can you imagine when Garfield gets assassinated six months into his presidency? Wow. 
<laughs> I guess probably it would have changed the result, could have changed the results of the election. But it's a fascinating to play like what if he had been Garfield's VP. I also think it's pretty interesting, like Reconstruction ends abruptly, <laughs> literally one day in 1877. And so this is the interesting thing about Senate terms. They're a long time for this reason. They're supposed to be, you know, give the senators the chance to sort of be apart from the popular will and sort of be, give them a chance to like govern. And so he's in the Senate. He still has a few more years left on his term when Reconstruction abruptly ends. And so Blanche Bruce is able to look and be like, shoot, this is the end of my political career. Like with white supremacy ascendant in Mississippi, they're not going to reappoint me back to the Senate. I'm done here after my term is out. Uh, and so he can kind of spend part of his sort of the waning days of his term last couple of years figuring out where he's going to go next. Whereas I feel like Hiram Revels wants to go back to Mississippi and lead and educate and promote African-American citizenship and sort of leadership from within. Blanche Bruce says, you know, I feel like that's not going to happen right now because things have taken a turn for the worse. And so he can figure out a way to do it in a different way. And so he stays in Washington, gets involved in African-American issues in the nation's capital. He stays close to Republican Party politics and uh, he travels a lot. He goes to Europe for a while. He corresponds with academics. He's got, you know, marries a woman at the top of African-American society. And so he's going to very much lead African-American high society in the nation's capital for years. Yeah, he is really savvy because, like you said, it's sort of like halfway through a Senate term, he knows exactly which way the wind's going to blow. And so he doesn't have to worry about re-election the way that a lot of our senators spend their last two years thinking about re-election. He doesn't have to worry about reappointment. And so he's really hobnobbing. And what he does so savvily is he builds up a massive network among black elites and academics, mixing and kind of mingling with the big names in the nation's capital and the big names in American society. Society, but he also really sort of endears himself to white politicians. He's friendly with Senator Lucius Lamar of Mississippi, who is not a good person, not a particularly progressive person. But Bruce is savvy enough to know that if he gets people like that to like him, if he gets people like Senator Conklin of New York, who's very much in the political game behind the scenes in the party, this is going to give him opportunities for the rest of his life. So he's really, I think, so gifted as a politician and a charmer to say, okay, I want to build up you know, a group within my community, but I also want to make myself palatable enough to the whites in power so that I can grab some power for myself as well. And I find that really, really interesting. He also marries an incredible woman, which is very smart of him. He marries a woman named Josephine Beale Wilson. She also comes from a mixed race background like himself. She is the first black teacher in the Cleveland public schools. She's from Ohio. Uh, she comes to D.C. with a real interest in education as well. So the two of them sort of become this D.C. power couple. Couple, which I think is really cool. <laughs> I think that's really cool too. They have only one child whose name they named Roscoe Conkling Bruce. After his good friend, Senator Conklin of New York. Roscoe Conkling, again, we're going to have to talk about Roscoe Conkling for like ever. He's fantastic. Um, and by fantastic, I mean really corrupt. Uh, but Roscoe Conkling was his, uh, Bruce's sort of mentor in the Senate. And so he names his only child after them. That's kind of cool. He becomes a trustee at Howard University. He has a portrait now, many years later in 2011, in the Capitol. His house is a National Historic Landmark. There's a public school named after him right after his death. 
He's exceptionally well, I feel like, in terms of kind of historic acknowledgement in DC. He's really well represented. It is interesting to me, it took so long to have his portrait added to the Capitol. It's not surprising, just interesting. He served in the 1870s and 130 years later, the first African-American to serve a full term in the Senate finally gets their Capitol portrait. Um, His house for those in the DC area is close to M and 9th and it is a national historic landmark. It's still there today, it's a private resident, but he really lived like in the heart of the city. Of course, D.C. was a segregated city, but he lived sort of in the heart of where um, a lot of the action was. He worked at the, in the Treasury Department for a very long time, so he took advantage of kind of having that cushy government job, steady income. Yeah, they had a school named after him, although it's no longer named for him. And then his son authored a textbook, which I find really interesting, that I now want to find a copy of called Just Women – But it was a history book about notable African-American women. So his son is writing this in the early part of the 20th century about important African-American women that young black children should know about. And I think that's really cool. And I think that has to be influenced by his mother. Oh, absolutely. I love that. The first African-American to serve in Congress was also in 1870, the same year as Hiram Revels. uh, Joseph Rainey of South Carolina becomes the first African-American himself also formerly enslaved. He's going to serve four terms. There are a few more African-Americans in Congress than in the Senate. However, uh, when Blanche Bruce's term ends in 1881, he will be the last African-American senator for nearly a hundred years. So by the time he's done, again, he's replaced by a man named James George, who's very much Mississippi. He's going to be sort of white supremacy as ascendant. James George is going to vote to undo all of the gains that African-Americans have made. He votes to disenfranchise black Mississippians in their state constitution. And when that gets challenged, he actually will go to the Supreme Court and defend it in front of the Supreme Court. So he defends disenfranchising African-Americans and Jim Crow in front of the Supreme Court, which officially makes him not a good person. There will not be another African-American in the United States Senate until 1967. Edward Brooks of Massachusetts. And so there's 92 years in between the end of Bruce's term and the start of Brooks's term. And I do want to just take a moment to say a couple things about Edward Brooke, which is one, he was a senator from Massachusetts, but he was born in Washington, D.C. So he's uh, born in D.C., but he is the first popularly elected black senator. So the introduction of the 17th Amendment is going to further keep this divide in Congress, because when you couple the fact of popularly elected senators with voting disenfranchisement for minorities and for women and for for lots of groups, this is going to keep African-Americans from being popularly elected to the Senate. So Brooke is really fascinating because it's going to take until the 1960s for a black politician to be elected. And it happens in Massachusetts. It isn't going to happen in the Deep South for even longer. So I think it's important to know that he was also the first Senate Republican to call for Nixon's resignation after the Watergate scandal. So he um, was a key author of the Civil Rights Act of 1968. He was not afraid to criticize Nixon, even though the Republican Party at the time was the the better party uh, in terms of his platform. But he wasn't afraid to sort of go after Nixon, which earned him a lot of criticism and lost him friends in Congress. But we should probably do an episode on Brooke, too. But it really is remarkable we're talking about almost a century between these two men. And and there are still Southern states today that have not sent 
a person of color to the Senate. Mississippi hasn't sent a senator, oh, an African-American senator back since Bruce and Hiram Revels. Georgia just sent its first, you know, it's we still there's still a ways. Oh, man. And Senator Edward Brooke is buried at Arlington National Cemetery, which if you listen to our episode last week, we were talking about uh, notable African-Americans at Arlington. So that's the sort of beginnings of African-Americans in the Senate. And it really, I think both Blanche Bruce and Hiram Revels really represent the idea of how Reconstruction could have been different than it was. So that there was this moment that the United States could have moved in a more inclusive direction before snap backwards. Uh, And uh, there's a big backlash that lasts basically from the 1880s up until the 1960s for a good 80 years there, uh, which encompasses the entire time between the two African-American senators. So the dates there are not in any way an accident. This is great. This was Rebecca's suggestion for an episode, and I'm so glad that we we got around to it because we, we've talked a lot about groundbreakers and, and historic firsts and, and, and where progress is being made. But I agree with you that these are two historic figures that often get overlooked in the conversation, often aren't talked about when we try to understand the trajectory of where we've come as a country and how long sometimes these things have taken uh, and really understanding that there were moments where we could have taken a turn to be more inclusive. There were moments where we could have gone in a new direction and the country, you know, it's two steps forward or one step forward, two steps back, as Paula Abdul once said. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Very serious. No, uh, these moments where we make progress as a country and then backslide as a country. I think it's important to acknowledge that and to explore those moments. And really, I find just both, both Revels and Bruce such great parallel stories, but also stories that really diverge in the past that they take in their life. And I think uh, it was really worth talking about. And also, I feel like is a good example, and this applies to every moment in history, the history is not linear, like we think of history as a linear stop, you know, like a train, and it's not that's not how it works. We move forward and sometimes lurch back and sometimes we move forward and you know history more represents an earthquake fault line it's always kind of lurching and heading in different directions and if there's nothing else that you get from this pod that's really what history is it is not a linear progression it's people doing people things and sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't that is a really good metaphor and i think that's where we should end (laughs) the episode. So we want to thank you guys so much for tuning in. We are so thankful as always for our listeners. We really, really want to say a big thank you to our patrons. Our patrons have been amazing. Uh, They literally keep us going. They keep the bills paid uh, while we're still waiting. Keep Keep the lights on uh, while we're still waiting for tourism to sort of come back to Washington, D.C. If you are not a patron, this is the time to join. We are doing a promotion right now. We're trying to reach our goal number for patrons. So if you join at any level right now, now and we reach our goal we're going to do a special series thanks to our friends and followers on twitter we are going to do a special series on first ladies our patrons are going to help pick which first ladies are going to get episodes these will be special episodes in addition to our regular episodes so if you want to be involved in this now is the time be a patron Patron levels start as low as like a dollar a month. So this is a way that you guys can help support the pod and get a say in what we talk about. We also, of course, want to hear from you on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Tour Guide Tell All, except on Twitter where we're at Tour Guide Tell. Um, and this is the time to pitch us your ideas. Uh, we love to hear what you guys want us to talk about. We sort of somehow 
accidentally always seem to have very topical (laughs) episodes, but if the events of the last few months, last few years, have you curious about certain time periods or certain people, let us know. We're happy to dig into an episode if it hits, or a subject for an episode if it hits something you're curious about. Yes, we've done a couple listener requested topics, and they're always kind of fun because it's really interesting to know what other people want to hear about. So that's really been cool. Thank you guys so very much for your listening and your continued support. And uh, we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the amazing Barbara Jordan, who I'm really excited to talk about, Becca's hometown hero. And it's going to be really great. So thank you very much. And bye for now. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. Candon Arseniega, Dan King, and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time, 